0: What do you worship? If someone was to look at your life, if someone was to watch your life, what would they say you worship? And I don't just mean praise. Praise is something we give a lot of things, and that's okay. Praise is to express our delight in something, right? And so when we have a great meal, when when someone deli- brings really good tacos, what do we do? We praise the tacos and the chef, right? We're like, wow, this is the best food I've ever had. Or maybe it is one thing that we do as a tradition. Every New Year's Day, we have a brunch, and I love to make what's called a bacon explosion. Yeah, I see some faces lighting up right now. The bacon explosion, it's a bacon weave with three pounds of sausage and... Then you roll that up, and in the middle is bacon crumbles with some cheese, and then I smother that in green chili. Oh, man, it is fantastic. I sing some praises. I just did sing some praises of the bacon explosion, right? So, so praising something is just something we express delight in. I express delight, or I praise my kids when they obey. I'm delighting in their, in their obedience, we delight in our friends when we see them obeying God and they, they hear their assignment from God and they follow their assignment in their life. We, we love to delight in that, right? We, I delight in my spouse when she is a very talented writer and she writes something that makes me sit and think and reflect on God. So we praise one another quite a bit. And I don't just mean, when I use the term worship, I don't just mean praise. But what do you worship? Worship is more than expressing delight. Expressing delight in God, I think, is kind of easy. We come here on Sunday morning and we sing praise songs and we express our delight, and usually there's some kind of emotional reaction, which is good, and and I think it can help us worship God. But it's not worship. The term worship actually means to lay prostrate down it's an act of submission it's not just to lay down and prostrate yourself in front of God it's an attitude of saying God I'm going to submit to you I want you to call the shots in my life I'm no longer the one that calls the shots what you call the shots. And what's amazing about worship is what you worship, you will begin to conform to. Essentially, what you decide you will submit your life to, you will begin to be shaped and conformed to. So what do you worship? We've turned back to our series Hopeful and We've been studying through Revelation. We've gotten into the second vision of Revelation. The first chapter in the second vision is chapter 4. And all of chapter 4 is describing the throne room of heaven where God the Father dwells. And it's all about worship. It's descriptions of how they worship God. How they submit their lives to God. And within that worship is praise. But it's also submission. And that's what chapter 5 is about as well. Think about that now. We're into the second vision found in Revelation, and the first two chapters are all about worship. So that's what we're going to study as we dig in today. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5. If you're new uh, to Christianity, Revelation is all the way in the back. So you can open your Bible and just turn to the back and you'll find Revelation. It's broken into different chapters and verses. Verses are the smaller numbers. Chapters are the bigger numbers. Those are not inspired. Those were created by man uh, to help us identify where we're studying and help us identify what we're talking about. So we're to Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, and the, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we've got, this starts off with then, meaning that it is coming after his first description of the throne room. So we looked last week and there was the description of the throne room of heaven and there was the throne with God the Father sitting on the throne, though he couldn't describe him exactly. So we get this kind of like, He looked like or had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And surrounding him was basically a rainbow or a halo of emerald. And then beyond that, there was four living creatures. And we we read about some wild-looking creatures. And then beyond that was 24 elders who fell down and worshipped God. And they cast their crowns before God. And those crowns were things they had earned. They weren't the diadem, the crowns of royalty, but they were crowns that had been earned somehow. And so we got this picture of anything you earn, anything you think you deserve, upon seeing God, you will lay it down at God's feet Because you know that whatever you have is really a gift from God. So after this vision, then he saw in the right hand. Now this is interesting, right? In the right hand of him who, notice he still doesn't use God's name yet. But he's saying on the throne, God the Father on the throne who has this appearance of Jasper and this appearance of Carnelian also had a right hand. So we've got these descriptions of stone, but also within this description of stone is a right hand hand. Now the right hand is symbolic for power and authority. So God is sitting on the throne and he has this authority, he has this power, and in that right hand is a scroll written within on the back. So uh, that means that it's double-sided. Basically, it's, there's a lot of writing in this scroll. Most scrolls at the time would be only written on one side. Uh, how they would make them, there were vertical lines and horizontal lines. On one side, there'd be vertical. On the other side, there'd be horizontal. You wanted to write on the appropriate side. You didn't want to write on both sides unless you absolutely had to. So this is, uh, uh, there's a lot of writing on this scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. Now the fact that it's sealed means that it is a contract. And they seal a contract so no one can tamper with it. And only the person with the right authority to open up the contract can open that contract. So that's the deal with the seals. Now there's a little bit of a debate about where the seven seals are. I think this is how it looks. I think this is our best picture of what the seven seals look like. It, picture, if you will, you know, when you like start rolling up a piece of paper and you kind of uh, roll one side a little bit tighter than the other and so it starts to roll out and what you know, you see the, the lines swirling as it rolls lopsidedly. Well, that would give you the ability to seal at certain points. And so if this was a contract that was sealed up so that no one could tamper it, tamper with it, I should say, then you would seal it at different points that you wanted it to be unsealed at different points in time. So you can see here, we've got it in this picture, you've got it uh, sealed at different points so that whoever has the authority to open that contract can open it only to a certain way. And then when the timing is right, they can break the seal for the next round. And when the timing is right, they can break the seal for the next round. Now the fact that it's sealed with seven seals, as we've been studying, seven is, the, is symbolic for perfection. It's the number of perfection. And so we've got seven seals, and this is going to be symbolic of God's perfect judgment. That's what these seals represent. That's what this scroll is all about. It is God's perfect judgment. Now, judgment has, I think, gotten kind of a bad rap. You know, you hear about Christians who are judgy, and, you know, it's a bit judgy. Uh, We shouldn't be a bit judgy. We shouldn't, you know, what we really mean is uh, we're being harsh towards others. And in all honesty, you and I uh, oftentimes, we're not great judges but there's still a call to judge to have discernment not to condemn but we use judgments all the time and it's okay we need to recognize that god's judgment is perfect judgment and god judges perfectly because he cares so we we, we bad mouth judging But let's say someone broke into a house of someone you deeply cared about. Maybe it's your own house. And in this analogy, it would be my house. And they attacked my wife and children. And in the end, after they were finished terrorizing my wife and kids, I said, Nah, I don't really want to be judgy. I don't want to be judgmental. So I'm just going to, you know, whatever that guy does, that's just him. That would show an indifference towards my wife and kids. It would show that I didn't really love my wife and kids. Could you imagine God, his creation, being ravaged by sin, and in the end he says, nah, that's just humans. You know they just like to ravage each other and kill each other and that's no big deal I still love them they're my creation no that's the exact opposite of love God judges because he cares and because he cares he will he will have his perfect judgment in the end he cares so he judges so we've got this perfect judgment coming in the form of these scrolls right so, he saw, uh, these scrolls and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? This term worthy here means who has authority to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. This in earth or in heaven or on earth or under the earth, it's just emblematic for all of creation. So no one in creation, no created thing had the authority to open the seals and read what the scroll said. No one, no created thing, whether angels or mankind, had the authority to open and look at God's perfect judgment. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. This is the purpose of the vision. If we remember last week, the introduction, he comes up and he had. The angel calls him to come and see, actually Jesus calls him to come and see the things that must, be, must take place. God's divine judgment must take place because God cares. Here's the scroll and no one can open it. So it's all, it, it, he starts to weep. The whole purpose of the vision is, is wiped out, right? So he starts to cry. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold." The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So no created thing can open the scroll, but Jesus can. Now look how Jesus is described. The lion. We find that this is the reference, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This reference is found in Genesis 49, 9-10. through 10. It's a militaristic term. The lion had great power, great might. So he's first described as a lion with great power and great might, but then also the root of David. We find this in Isaiah eleven one, and it is a reference to a righteous ruler. Both are messianic references. The the Second Temple Jew would have would have read these and both thought of this great political. Deliverer, Messiah. That's where our mind typically tends to go. Political delivery. Because our physical, whenever we run into physical oppression, we want physical deliverance. The Second Temple Jew was suffering under Rome. Rome called the shots. Rome taxed whatever they wanted to tax. Rome could take your children if Rome wanted to take your children. And what did the Jews cry out for? Deliverance. And so they read these pieces of Scripture that were about Jesus, that were about the Messiah, and they said, they emphasized these pieces, and they said, this is it. This is the political deliverer. And they missed, let's say, Isaiah 53, that talked about the suffering servant. We have a tendency to do the same, but here it is a description of a political and mighty deliverer. Someone who is militaristic and mighty. And he has conquered. So they give him this description, this political and military description, and says he has conquered. I think that's important for us to take note, that he has is in past tense. It's not that he's going to conquer. This is kind of the paradox of Christianity. And the paradox is Christ has already won. Christ is already victorious. And we can live out that victory here on earth. But it doesn't look like how we think of victory. When we think of victory, what do we think of? We think of physically better physically superior, and we can bring that might down onto others. Jesus conquered not through military might, but through the cross. Jesus didn't conquer through killing others so that others would submit to him. He conquered by willingly walking to the cross, to pay for our sins. He was and is the suffering servant and therefore he conquered. It wasn't through him being the lion. It wasn't through him being the root of Jesse although he is those two things and he is he does have might. But it was through his ability to pay for our sins, and to lay down his life. I think we could learn a lot of lessons from that. So Revelation isn't about Christ's victory. It isn't looking forward to Christ's victory. It's actually looking forward to the culmination of Christ's victory. Christ is already victorious. Christ has already won. He's already defeated death. This is about the culmination. It's kind of like, I remember in 1998, I was 18 years old, and the Broncos won their first Super Bowl. Yeah. (laughs) Some people would say boo, and and that's okay. Uh, But the Broncos won their first Super Bowl. About a month later, the city of Denver threw them a parade. I ditched school and went to that parade. I'm not saying kids ditch school. I'm just saying that's what I did. So I went to that parade. Now, we might get confused. Someone might get confused and say the parade was the victory. But we know better than that, right? The parade was the culmination of the victory. The parade was the celebration of the victory. In Revelation, it's not, that's not the victory. The victory was on the cross. Revelation is the culmination of the victory. You and I can live victoriously in Christ because he's already been victorious. And we can live that victory out. So, he's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This judgment is part of the victory that's already been won in Christ on the cross. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So, First, we need to recognize where Jesus is seen. This term between and among are both the same in the Greek, and it's meso, which means in the midst of, which means we don't actually have a great understanding of where Jesus was standing, other than he was in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the four living creatures. Essentially, he's right there among them all. It's not that he's off to the side. It's not that he's somewhere else. It's he's right there in the midst of it all. And then listen to how he's described. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is a description of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was the lamb that they killed every year in remembrance of the original Passover lamb which was killed during the Exodus. If you remember the story of Exodus, there were the plagues. The, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And God brought upon plagues, and Pharaoh would always say, okay, I'll let them go, psych. Okay, I'll let them go, just kidding. And so God finally brings in the last plague, which is the death of the firstborn son. And the only way to avoid your firstborn son dying was to kill a lamb and paint your door posts with his blood. That's the Passover lamb. And it's called Passover because any time the angel of death saw the blood on the doorstep, it would pass over that house. The lamb took the place of the firstborn son. And so we see this this tradition carry on and that's why Jesus becomes the Passover lamb because he takes our place. Every single one of us have sinned, we've missed the mark, we've rebelled, we've shaken our fist at God and said, forget you God, I want to rule my own life, I don't want to submit to you, I don't want to worship you, I want to worship me. And as a result, we have all earned death, eternal separation from God. But God, being so rich in His love for us, paid that price. He comes and He pays the price and that's why He's the Passover Lamb. So that death can pass us over. Eternal separation from God can can pass us over. And all we need is to put our faith and trust in Christ. And then that Passover lamb gets applied to us. So he's described as the lamb standing with seven horns and seven eyes. Now this is interesting because the seven horns represent power, right? So we go from the military might of the lion and the root of Jesse to the Passover lamb and then once again that we see Christ's might. It's not that he's left simply as a Passover lamb who is just feeble and Uh, easily killed, but once he is slain, he then again gets the horns. The horns represent power and might, and there's seven of them, which means he has perfect power. Some people describe him now as a ram, because a ram has power. So he has this perfect power. It's not that he's left as a feeble lamb that you can kill, but now he is a perfectly powerful ram, And not only does he have uh, seven horns, but he also has seven eyes. The seven eyes represent all seeing and all knowing. So we see that he's omniscient, right? He's all powerful, he's all knowing. And the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Now once again, we've talked about this, the seven spirits of God represent the Holy Spirit. So the, the... The lamb has seven horns with perfect power, seven eyes, meaning he's all-knowing, and then these seven eyes are also the seven spirits that are sent out throughout all of the earth. So the Holy Spirit, we see this connection between Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is sent out after his death with a new ministry to convict men of our sin. And upon that conviction and us turning and putting our faith into Christ, then the Holy Spirit's ministry is what's called regeneration or making us new. So you, upon putting your faith and trust in Christ, are made new, meaning you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins because when you rebelled against God, when you shook your fist at God and said, forget you, God, I don't want to worship you, I want to worship me, I want to do things my own way, you became dead without ability in your trespasses, and in your sins. But upon putting your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit makes you new and makes you alive. This is so important because you don't have to be held hostage by your sin anymore. That sin that has plagued you, that sin that you swore you'd never do again, and yet you found yourself doing it again. You don't have to be held hostage to that sin the Holy Spirit has made you new, made you alive. So it is the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is a transfer of the execution of the plan. So God has the plan in his right hand. He has the authority. He has the power and he transfers that authority and power in the execution of the plan to the lamb who was slain, I should say to the lion, and the lamb who was slain but is now full powerful ram. All right. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The bowls of incense represent the prayers of the saints, and why it's incense is because incense was considered acceptable by God. So that's symbolic for being acceptable by God. So the question then comes, who are the saints who have prayers that are acceptable to God? And the answer is you. Do you ever think of yourself as a saint? We find throughout the New Testament that the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ and He transfers you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive together with God, He calls you holy and acceptable, righteous and pure. He calls you a saint. Now sometimes you don't act like it. I know I don't always act like a saint. If you don't believe me, ask my kids they'll tell you, my dad's not always a saint. But just because I don't act like it doesn't mean God hasn't made me a saint. And just because you don't act like it doesn't mean God hasn't made you a saint. And when you're not acting like a saint, don't beat yourself up in shame saying, I'm not saint-like. What you do is you remind yourself, God already paid the price and he's already called me a saint. And then you let your actions conform to what God has already placed upon you, and that is sainthood. So anyone who is found in Christ, meaning they have put their faith and trust in Christ, are saints. And they sang a new song. So the elders and the four creatures sang a new song. Now this uh, this term song, or new, it means like new type of, meaning that, Throughout eternity, we will always be creating new types of songs. Now, this isn't against old traditional songs. I think God loves the old traditional songs. Hymns, I think God loves. But he also enjoys new types of songs. And we are constantly seeing new type of music developed, right? I mean, there was, I think it was in the 60s, we got some rock and roll, right? I'm not a history buff when it comes to music. But we see developments throughout the, the generations, right? Throughout the decades. We see new, new developments. All the way into the 90s, I, there was like gangster rap was pretty popular. And then I think, you know, we had some dubstep come in and like the teens. I guess it was late aughts. EDM now, for those that don't know, that's electronic dance music. I think I got that right. I'm not sure, but, but the whole point is there's always going to be new music. It is in our tendency to enjoy the music from when we came to age. So, you know, I kind of like late nineties, early aughts kind of alternative punk music. That's, that's what I listened to when I came to age. And so sometimes when we get into a certain groove and we like a certain type of music, we look at the new music. And we just dislike it. And we think for some reason we're more holy because we like 90s rock. And it's just not true. You're not more holy if you like hymns. I like hymns. Hymns don't make you holy. 60s rock, gangster rap definitely doesn't make you more holy. But you're not more or less holy based on that music. And God will always enjoy the new types of worship that humans create to worship Him. New types of praise that humans create to praise Him. Let us not badmouth new types of music that is meant to praise God. So they sing to Him a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now, we're just getting the lyrics. We don't have, like, the music written down. But do you wonder what type of music this is now? Like, it's a new type of song. I wonder, you know, are they, like, rocking the harp? We always think of the harp, right? Is there some instrument we don't know yet? Is it EDM that they're singing to here? I don't know. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Four, and now we see the reason why he's worthy, why he has this authority. For you were slain, and by your blood... So he took the sacrifice, he paid the penalty for our sin, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. This term ransomed means freed from bondage. So we were in bondage to sin, we were slaves to sin, but it is by his blood and putting our faith and trust in Christ that we are freed from the bondage of sin. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Basically, it's salvation is offered to all. There is no people group or ethnicity that God is prejudiced against. He has offered the salvation to everyone, to all people. And not only has he freed us from the bondage of sin, but he takes it a step further. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Priest means that you can interact with God. You no longer need an intermediary. You no longer need someone else to connect you with God, but you can connect with God on a personal level. It's so important to understand that you can have a personal relationship with your Creator. And not only has He made us a kingdom and priests, but also they shall reign on earth, on the earth. So we have victory. We have victory through Christ that we no longer have to be slaves to sin. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriad was basically, that was the highest number that the Romans knew of at the time. It was basically 10,000 or I think it was around 10,000. So that was the highest number. So the fact that it's repeated means that it's like an uncountable number that he sees. It's too high to be counted of angels. Think about that for a second. There is a number of angels too many for us to count that are going to sing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now recognize, in chapter 4, it was all about God, worshiping God the Father, right? It was all about praising God the Father. We're transferring that now to God the Son. So Jesus is now the one who is being praised. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we're going to see a praise or acclamation of the reason why, or, or a recognition of, uh, of His attributes. To receive power. Power is possession or influence or control of a certain thing or certain people. So he has control, influence. Or possession of. And wealth. Wealth is an abundance of resources. God has an abundance of resources. Jesus has an abundance of resources. And wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. Not only does Jesus know what all of the symbolism in Revelation means, but he knows how to perfectly apply it. Unlike most of us. And might. Might is the ability to accomplish your will. Now a lot of us think we have might. But we don't. My two-year-old thinks she has might, and she has learned the word no. She is expressing her will. Hey, Harper, why don't you put that in the trash? No. Oh, really? All right, now we've got a battle of wills here, and I'll tell you, the two-year-old is not going to win. But often when it comes to God, we are like that two-year-old. We try, we think we have the might to accomplish our will, and God is saying, No, I'm God. I will accomplish my will. So we've got might and honor, that's high status. Glory is praise, and blessing is favor. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying. So verse 13 is basically emphasizing all of creation. There's not a little bit of creation that will even be left out. Every single bit of creation will be, will be saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So notice now we, we went from chapter 4, the one on the throne, to chapter 5 we had Jesus, the Lamb, and now we've got both and. So they're singing and worshiping both God the Father and God the Son. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen is sim- simply means, I agree. You could start saying that after your prayers if you'd like, but uh, it's, it's affirmation, right? And so the four living creatures said, I agree. I agree. That, uh, that the one who sits on the throne and the lamb is, is blessed and honored and, glo- and is worthy of praise and has all might and ability to accomplish their will. I agree. I affirm. And the elders upon that affirmation fell down and worshiped. Now get, they were praising, right? They were praising God. They were expressing their delight in God. They were just, they were expressing their delight in God by describing what he was doing right. Or, not, I shouldn't say what he was doing right, but they were describing all of his rightness. They were describing him. That's how they were expressing their delight in him. The four living creatures give the affirmation of that expression of delight, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So they praised him. That praise, expressing the delight in God, helps them to fall down and worship. Fall down, laying down, prostrate, in an act of submission, saying, God, you are the one who has control of my life. The one who sits on the throne and the Lamb are worthy of our submission. They are worthy of us saying, you are the one who calls the shots. And yet, how often do we let something else in life call the shots? How often do we let ourselves be conformed to something else? How many other things do we put above the one on the throne and the Lamb. Think about it. For some, and we can see this clearly, for some, it's politics. And there are certain political parties that are going to shape them, and they say, you know, I, I praise God, and I express delight in God, but really when it comes down to it, there is a political party that shapes me, and I prefer that political party to God shaping me. And there are others that say, you know what? A lifestyle of fun is really what should shape me. And I'm all about fun. And whatever is fun is what I do. And fun shapes me because I love fun. And there's all sorts of other things. Money, retirement. There can even be a religiosity where we say, I am going to let the church be the one to shape me. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the church. The church is is a creation by God to help us grow in God's grace. And yet, if we are putting the church above God and God's Word, then we've messed up. Our priorities are wrong. There are all kinds of things in this world. We are a creature that was made To worship. Made to say, you you are the defining thing in my life. And because you are the defining thing in my life, I will be shaped and I will be formed by you. And you, if it's not God, it will be something else. So what do you worship? What do you let define you? What do you bow down in submission to, saying, I want you to call the shots and shape and form me? Whatever that is, is what you'll become more and more like. Dear Lord, we recognize that we you created us to be creatures that worship us. Creatures that submit to something and conform to that thing, and you created us to worship you, that we wouldn't let other things take your place, and yet we constantly do. We constantly put things where only you belong. And as a result, we become jacked up. We have jacked up priorities, jacked up ideas. And we value the wrong things. Lord, we pray that you would help us come back to a place of true worship where you are at the center, where you are what defines us and shapes us and molds us. Help us to be pliable by you, Lord, and fall down before you, ready not just to express delight in you, but to be molded and shaped by You. In Your name we pray. Amen.